You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 1st of September for the listening week that begins the 2nd. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening topics this week. The August 28th, 60th anniversary of March on Washington. And it's Labor Day weekend. From the Chicago Defender. Gospel singer Mahalia Jackson made a suggestion during the 1963 March on Washington and it changed a good speech to a majestic sermon on an American dream. This was posted by The Conversation, originally on August 27th. Written by Bev Frieda Jackson. Every now and then, a voice can matter. Mahalia Jackson had one of them. Known around the world as the Queen of Gospel, Jackson used her powerful voice to work in the civil rights movement. Starting in the 1950s, she traveled with the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. throughout the South and heard him preach in black churches about a vision that only he could see. But on August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, something didn't quite, pardon me, something didn't quite sound right to Jackson as she listened to King deliver his prepared speech. King was reading from his prepared remarks when she made a simple suggestion. Tell them about the dream, Martin, she urged him. Tell them about the dream. Inspired, King cast aside his prepared remarks and ad-libbed from his heart. For the estimated 250,000 who joined, the march on Washington for jobs and freedom that day, they then heard King deliver one of his seminal sermons. Though most memorable, King's voice wasn't the only one that day, 60 years ago. The other voice, the one King listened to and heeded, belonged to Mahalia Jackson. He once said, A voice like hers comes along once in a millennium. Born on October 26, 1911, in New Orleans, Jackson had a contralto voice that first won fame as a gospel singer in the choir at Greater Salem Baptist Church on Chicago's South Side during the 1940s. Among her earliest hit recordings were I Can Put My Trust in Jesus, In the Upper Room, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands, and Even Me, Lord. Before long, Jackson was appearing in major concert venues in the U.S. and Europe. In 1956, she was the first gospel singer to perform at Carnegie Hall. In 1961, Jackson sang at the inauguration of President John F. Kennedy. The popular Ed Sullivan show made Jackson a household name by frequently asking her to perform. But international fame did not make Jackson forget her religious upbringing and commitment to fight for equal rights. In As the Spirit Moves Mahalia, prominent black writer Ralph Ellison wrote about the meaning of Jackson's voice. 
The true function of her singing is not simply to entertain, he explained, but to prepare the congregation for the minister's message, to make it receptive to the spirit, and with effects of voice and rhythm, to evoke a shared community of experience. Ellison further wrote that Jackson was not primarily a concert singer, but a high priestess in the religious ceremony of the church. Mahalia and Martin Jackson and King first met at the National Baptist Convention in Alabama in 1956. King asked her if she could support his work there by singing and inspiring civil rights activists during the 381-day Montgomery bus boycott. From there, she became the first woman to serve on the board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a prominent civil rights group led by King, and became one of King's most trusted advisors. In a 1962 press release, King wrote that Jackson has appeared on numerous programs that helped the struggle in the South, but now she has indicated that she wants to be involved on a regular basis. She shared his vision for breaking down the barriers of segregation and fighting for equitable treatment for African Americans in her own right Jackson became a visible fixture within the civil rights movement. Jackson died in 1972 at the age of 60. If music was the soul of the movement, strategic thinking was at its core. As psychologist Asa Hilliard later explained, among those strategies was moral suasion, litigation, grassroots organizing, civil disobedience, economic boycotts, the solicitation of corporate sponsors, and the use of television. The March on Washington was considered the culminating event of the historic civil rights movement. The march was rooted in the ideal of economic justice and intentionally held on August 28th to commemorate the lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi on the same date in 1955. Till's death and the subsequent acquittal of three white men charged with the brutal murder was one of the turning points of the movement. Among the building blocks of the civil rights movement was music. It spoke to the soul, and Mahalia's gift comforted the masses. King often called her during trying times and asked her to sing to him over the telephone. King called her a blessing to me, and a blessing to Negroes who have learned through her not to be ashamed of their heritage. It was no surprise then that Jackson felt comfortable enough to make a suggestion to the civil rights leader during a sermon. Before he appeared on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Jackson had sung her rendition of I Have Been Buked and I Have Been Scorned, and after he finished, she sang We Shall Overcome. But her most important line that day might have been, Tell them about the dream, Martin. Still reading from the Chicago Defender, posted September 3rd night in 2000, pardon me, and 22. A little bit of Labor Day history. Labor Day Black History, honoring A. Philip Randolph and Black Labor Unions. The first Monday of September marks the end of summer every year in the United States, 
It's also the day workers' rights advocates pushed to formally recognize the achievement and contributions of American laborers. The holiday was first celebrated in the early 1880s by individual states before getting its national holiday title in 1894. At the time, black people in the U.S. were just year. Pardon me. Yes. I'll start over. Black people in the U.S. were just years separated from slavery, in the throes of the Reconstruction era, and battling ongoing racial injustice in every aspect of life, especially the labor market. After being enslaved for generations, black people fought and continue the fight to earn equal pay, workers' rights, and more. One black figure leading the way. Was Asa Philip Randolph, who in 1925 began a decade-long crusade leading the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters (BSCP), one of the nation's first black labor unions. The organization brought labor union ideals to thousands of black households, and in 1935 became the first black-led labor organization certified by the American Federation of Labor. As an exclusive collective bargaining agent, the BSCP had a membership of upwards of eighteen thousand black railway workers of the Pullman Company, and fought against labor inequality, unfair wages, and poor working conditions carried out by the Pullman Company, which had exploited the situation of newly freed black people in search of employment opportunities. Randolph was a native of Florida. And attended the Cookman Institute, which is present-day Bethune-Cookman University. He also became a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity, Incorporated, and went on to organize the 1941 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which is credited with inspiring the nonviolent protesting principles of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Randolph's work also included leading mass protests against the segregation of the nation's military, following the passage of the Selective Service Act of 1947. His leadership and influence made its way to the White House a year later, on July 26, 1948, as President Harry Truman, who was up for re-election at the time and needed the votes of young black men. Signed an executive order to end racial discrimination in the armed forces. In a nod of reverence, the next generation of civil rights leaders made Randolph the chair of the 1963 March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made his famous "I Have a Dream" speech. Randolph continued his life's work throughout the 60s, becoming a founder of the Negro American Labor Council. And serving as its president from 1960 to 1966, in 1968 Randolph retired as the BSCP president and continued working to bring fair labor practices to Black Americans at the A. Philip Randolph Institute. Randolph passed away at the age of 90 on May 16, 1979. And right now, I want to take a minute to credit the source that. Posted these articles from the Chicago Defender, the Black Information Network, which can be accessed for audio news. Black Information Network is the first and only 24/7 national and local all news 
audio service dedicated to providing an objective, accurate, and trusted source of continual news coverage with a black voice and perspective. BIN is enabled by the resources, assets, and financial support of iHeartMedia and the support of its founding partners, Bank of America, CVS Health, Geico, Lowe's, McDonald's, USA, Sony, 23andMe, and Verizon. BIN is focused on service to the black community and providing an information window for those outside the community to help foster communication, accountability, and deeper understanding. Black Information Network is distributed nationally through the iHeartRadio app and accessible via mobile, smart speakers, smart TVs, and other connected platforms. And on dedicated, all-news local broadcast AM-FM radio stations. Expanding a bit on this history of the March on Washington, reading now from King Institute dot Stanford, pardon me, dot Stanford, edu. The 1963 March on Washington had several precedents. In the summer of 1941, A. Philip Randolph, founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, called for a march on Washington, D.C. to draw attention to the exclusion of African Americans from positions in the national defense industry. This job market had proven to be closed to blacks, despite the fact that it was growing to supply materials to the Allies in World War II. The threat of 100,000 marchers in Washington, D.C. pushed President Franklin D. Roosevelt to issue Executive Order 8802, which mandated the formation of the Fair Employment Practices Commission to investigate racial discrimination charges against defense firms. In response, Randolph canceled the plans for the march. Civil rights demonstrators did assemble at the Lincoln Memorial in May 1957 for a prayer pilgrimage for freedom. On the third anniversary of board pardon me, Brown versus Board of Education, and in October 1958 for a youth march for integrated schools to protest the lack of progress since that ruling. King addressed the 1957 demonstration, but due to ill health at the time from being stabbed by Isola Curry, Coretta Scott King delivered his scheduled remarks at the 1958 event. By 1963, the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation, most of the goals of the earlier protests still had not been realized. High levels of black unemployment, work that offered most African Americans only minimal wages and poor job mobility, systematic disenfranchisement of many African Americans and the persistence of racial segregation in the South prompted discussions about a large-scale march for political and economic justice as early as 1962. Randolph wrote a letter on May 24, 1962 to Secretary Stuart Udall of the Department of the Interior regarding permits for a march culminating at the Lincoln Memorial that fall. Plans for the march were stalled when Udall encouraged the groups to consider the Sylvan Theater 
at the Washington Monument due to the complications of rerouting traffic and the volume of tourists at the Lincoln Memorial. In March 1963, Randolph telegraphed King that the NALC had begun planning a June march quote, for Negro job rights and asked for King's immediate response. In May, at the height of the Birmingham campaign, King joined Randolph, James Farmer of Corps, and Charles McDew of SNCC in calling for such an action later that year, declaring, Let the black laboring masses speak. After notifying President Kennedy of their intent, the leaders of the major civil rights organizations set the March date for 28th of August. The stated goals of the protest included a comprehensive civil rights bill that would do away with segregated public accommodations, protection of the right to vote, mechanisms for seeking redress of violations of constitutional rights, desegregation of all public schools in 1963, a massive federal works program to train and place unemployed workers, and a federal Fair Employment Practices Act barring discrimination in all employment. As the summer passed, the list of organizations participating in and sponsoring the event expanded to include the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, the National Urban League, the National Catholic Conference for Interracial Justice, and the National Council of the Churches of Christ in America, and the United Auto Workers, and many others. The March on Washington was not universally embraced. It was condemned by the Nation of Islam and Malcolm, Malcolm X, pardon me, who referred to it as the farce on Washington, although he attended nevertheless. The Executive Board of the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations declined to support the march, adopting a position of neutrality. Nevertheless, many constituent unions attended in substantial numbers. The diversity of those in attendance was reflected in the events, speakers, and performers. They included singers Marian Anderson, Odetta, John Baez, and Bob Dylan, Little Rock civil rights veteran Daisy Lee Bates, actors Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, American Jewish Congress President Rabbi Hokim Prince, Randolph, UAW President Walter Ruther, NAAC President Roy Wilkins, National Urban League President Whitney Young, and SNCC leader John Lewis. After the march, King and other civil rights leaders met with President Kennedy and Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson at the White House, where they discussed the need for bipartisan support of civil rights legislation. Though they were passed after Kennedy's death, the provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Voting Rights Act of 1965 reflect the demands of the march. And next, some global news still reading from the Black Information Network source. 20, pardon me, 200 people arrested following gay wedding in Nigeria. This is written by Jovan Ledet posted August 31st. 
Police in Nigeria said they arrested 200 people in connection to a gay wedding on Monday, August 28. According to state police spokesman Bright Adafe, suspects were arrested after officers stormed a hotel in southern Delta State's Ekpang town where a gay marriage was being held, according to the Associated Press. After initial investigations, at least 67 people were detained out of the 200. Who were arrested. Under the Same Sex Marriage Prohibition Act, which was enacted in 2013, gay people can face up to 14 years in prison in Nigeria. Accomplices can be sentenced to a maximum of 10 years in prison. Edafi said homosexuality quote, will never be tolerated. The amazing part of it was we saw two suspects. And there is a video recording where they were performing their wedding, me, wedding ceremony, he said. We are in Africa and we are in Nigeria. We cannot copy the Western world because we don't have the same culture. That was a quote from Edafe. The police spokesman said officers cannot fold their hands and watch gay people openly express their sexuality in Nigeria. This is not something that will be allowed in Nigeria. Again, said Adafe. In a video, one of the suspects said they weren't attending the wedding and were at the hotel for another engagement. Another individual who was arrested said they didn't identify as gay and were headed to a fashion show. On my way, going to the event, police attacked me and took me to the police station, said the suspect. They said I have committed an offense. While dressed like this, but I don't know if cross dressing is against the constitution of the land. Nigerian police have previously been accused of using the Same Sex Marriage Prohibition Act to carry out mass arrests of people of all sexual orientations. Amnesty International Nigeria called for an immediate end to this witch hunt. In a society where corruption is rampant, This same sex law banning same sex relationships is increasingly being used for harassment, extortion, and blackmail of people, said Issa Sanusi, the organization's director, in a statement. Another from African perspective, this was posted on the first, written by Ngozi Nwanji for Afrotech. Akon says every single African American would be a millionaire if they fully invest in Africa. Akon is a strong believer in the future of Africa. Back in 2020, the musician and businessman first announced that he was spearheading a $6 billion project, Akon City. As previously reported by Afrotech, Akon City was incepted to be a safe space for black Americans and others facing racial injustices. The futuristic pan African city is reportedly being built in Senegal, where Akon was raised. If you're coming from America or Europe or elsewhere in the diaspora and you feel that you want to visit Africa, we want Senegal to be your first stop, Akon said at the time. While Akan's project is still under construction, he is pushing for a proposition to African Americans that he strongly believes they should consider. In an interview on Revolt's podcast, Assets Over Liabilities, 
He shared his perspective on Africa being the holy grail for freedom and generational wealth. In addition, he broke down his claim that the African continent is a lucrative investment. He said, Africa is in a position where if African Americans take position now, every single African American would be a millionaire without even thinking twice because there's nothing that's not needed over there. Akan told hosts Rashad Bilal and Troy Millings, So, you guys come with the discipline, you guys come with the knowledge, you come with the resources. Akan went on to emphasize his perspective that it's black people who are the driving force behind America's revenue today, across all sectors, such as sports, entertainment, fashion, and medicine. I mean, you name it, we're leading in every single sector, he said. Just imagine if we all just decided to take all of our bags, withdrew all our money, and go to Africa. Where would America be today? It would collapse overnight. During the course of the interview, Akan also shared further details on the status of Akan City. He says that he and his team have faced a lot of complications in developing the city. However, they are working under an estimated 10-year plan. The whole idea is to create what the future of Africa should be, he said. We have all the resources, we have the manpower, we definitely have the population. So it was just a matter of putting something in a country that can start and pretty much scale out to every other country that we can copy and paste, or at least the idea. He added, if nothing else happens... The city will be done, and mentally, people know that it's something possible to do in Africa. Next article written by Charity Nelson at Blavity.com, posted August 28th. After rescuing a coffee shop, sisters focus on other black women-owned businesses. Brianna and Diana Bay are the owners of Vault and Vine, a coffee, plant, and gift shop recovered from the brink of shutting down. The shop, which is based in the East Falls area of Philadelphia, was almost lost to the whims of inflation before the sisters, who were once patrons of the store themselves, took over. So far, Vault and Vine continues to remain a community gem, while the new founders commit themselves to supporting black women-owned businesses. Taking on V&V &V came from a few things. We were both tired of working for companies where we didn't feel valued, so we had discussed working for ourselves, but never really had a plan. The sisters and co-owners said when speaking with 2190, When we saw the sale listing, I knew it was V&V. &V. I had ties to this place as a regular customer. I used to bring my children here for hot chocolate after school. And I even taught Zumbini upstairs for a short time. Brianna liked the idea of running our own business, but really she did this for me. I've wanted to own my own cafe for a while. After speaking with Pecha, the previous owner, it was made plain that if the business were not sold, it would simply close for good. Since rescuing V&V, &V, the sisters have had to orient themselves with what it takes to run a shop. Learning the ins and outs of running Vault and Vine has been challenging, to say the least, explained Diana. 
Every aspect, the cafe, the greenhouse, retail, floral departments, they all have different needs. Vendors to foster relationships with and rules and regulations. And to be honest, they all have different types of clientele. On top of that, I didn't realize how much politics play a role in the day-to-day running of a business. There are neighborhood committees, building and zoning committees, business associations, and actual city and state politics to contend with. Diana says the shop was also in severe disrepair before they took it on. It was like the previous owner was holding everything together with duct tape and took it with her when she left. It was the first in the first three months, two separate sinks broke, our ice machine went down in the height of the summer, the refrigerator started leaking, two of our vendors stopped delivering, and our water filtration system sprang a leak, pardon me, sprang a leak in three different places back to back. After overcoming all those hurdles, Diana said the sisters faced a break-in when someone shattered the shop's front door and destroyed the cafe's register. We also ended up with a huge hole in our greenhouse floor and had to close it down for repairs, she said. Then, on December 5th, we got a notice that the next day the street would be closed for a water main replacement project that would last until December 21st, the entire holiday season. And that project actually lasted through April, which affected Valentine's Day and inched into Mother's Day seasons, the biggest holidays that actually keep us afloat. The duo said they lost a lot of business. Their pleas for help from politicians were unsuccessful. Through their hard work and diligence, the sisters were able to stay afloat during those hard times. Diana tells 2190 that VNV's commitment to supporting black women is deeply important to the enterprise. The shop stocks products made by black women, opening those up to new clientele. We are painfully aware of how underrepresented, underfunded, and undersupported we are. We both knew and met amazing black woman entrepreneurs, pardon me, entrepreneurs, and that made it easy to be deliberate about supporting others who look like us. And to be honest, like-minded, hard-working individuals tend to cross through the same circles, so if we needed a new vendor, all we had to do was ask someone we knew, and like magic, There was a dope black woman who could fill the void. Diana shares that VNV will continue to hire black women as contractors, promote and highlight them whenever possible. She says the business will also collaborate on projects and support black women personally by purchasing their products and attending their events. Ultimately, Diana hopes that VNV will continue to be a safe space for its patrons. Next, a few articles from the media world. This one, theater, comes from Datebook, from the San Francisco Chronicle, written by Lily Janiak, posted August 30th. Broadway-bound Hippest Trip, the Soul Train Musical, interrogates the great man-myth. When playwright Dominique Marceau saw the 2010 documentary Soul Train, the Hippest Trip in America, her reaction was that of an artist, one steeped in a pragmatist's understanding of history, 
I never knew Don Cornelius owned the rights to his own show, she told the Chronicle, referring to the creator and host of the, the legendary TV series that ran from 1970 to 2006. It's kind of like when Ray Charles owned his own catalog. You're like, what? In the era you came up in? How did you get that? To have agency as an artist is a fight, she went on. You have to sort of usurp it. People don't give it away. Exploring how Cornelius achieved that power over Soul Train, the weekly music and dance party that for generations scaled the peaks of Black Groove, style and sound, became one seed of Hippest Trip, the Soul Train musical, which is now in a world premiere at American Conservatory Theater in anticipation of a Broadway run but more so the Detroit native and rock star playwright behind Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, and Paradise Blue, and Skeleton Crew, didn't land on a simplistic great man theory of ownership. Her musical asks, Who gets to own the legacy of Soul Train? Is it Cornelius, or is it the plurality of the individual dancers? This country values singular leadership and power, said director Camilla Forbes, who is also the executive producer of Harlem's storied Apollo Theater. But at what cost? What is the harm? Singularity is not what builds a country, and Hippest Trip explores that. In a recent rehearsal for the show, Forbes modeled on a small scale what shared ownership might look like Cast members trade off, selecting warm-up music, and they get to share a bit about why a song matters to them. That day, for Desri's You Gotta Be performer, Eunice Cruz explained, I use this song as a reminder to hold on. Reflecting on her rehearsal philosophy afterward, Forbes said, This is a story about the joy of black culture, the joy of black identity and individuality. That means... You have to bring your full self to the circle. I'm not going to tell you what that full self is going to look like, she added. There's guidelines we provide, but you have to fill in the color. For more so, Forbes and choreographer Camille A. Brown, Soul Train was required viewing during their childhoods. If you missed a week's episode, Brown noted of her New York youth, you was out of it. Watching Soul Train was an opportunity, said Forbes. As I'm forming my own self-identity, I'm able to have a lens and a gaze from Soul Train, how they dressed, how they wore their hair. She remembers practicing Soul Train moves in her Chicago bedroom at a time when she saw a few other people who looked like her on screen. Watching the show made her think, oh yeah, that's me. To watch old episodes of Soul Train today with Morisot, Forbes, and Brown is to see no monolithic vision of blackness, but instead a kaleidoscope, an endless font of whimsy, curiosity, and soul-deep expression. In a 1973 clip of a line dance to Cool in the Gang's Jungle Boogie, one dancer wears platform shoes that seem as tall as battleships. He was like, you're going to see me, Forbes quipped. Another dancer sports pedal pushers and knee-high red socks that match her scarf. 
A third dances in pigtails, red suspenders, and knickerbockers. Doing the splits, she looks like an overgrown doll. Brown, a two-time Tony Award nominee, listed what she saw. Individuality and creative identity and this idea of freedom, safe space, an opportunity to be yourself. Black joy, black excellence. How do our stories live in our bodies, she went on, and how do we show that as we come down the line? Hippest Trip is a dance-driven musical drawing on 40 black social dances from throughout the decades that Soul Train was on the air. Many had different names in different parts of the country, what's called the butterfly in one region, where the knees point in and then spread out, resembling butterfly wings, is called the Tootsie Roll elsewhere. Brown didn't sprinkle these moves in decor- pardon me, decoratively, working with associate choreographer and dance consultant Arisola Asakolumi, a veritable human encyclopedia of hip-hop. She looked at the movements the cast and creative team naturally used in informal conversations about what they were working on. She recalled, for instance, there's one section where Don is making deals and putting his show together. Brown saw Forbes make a gesture with her fists, light taps on top of one of the uh, one on top of the other, pardon me, almost like chain links locking in. A social dance resembling that movement made it into that scene. Forbes joked that one has to be careful around Brown because you might end up in choreo. Back at rehearsal in the dance Brown created for the entrance of Cornelius, played by Quentin Earl Darrington, performers' bodies make the floor beneath them turn crooked and wavy, then break apart. Beats later, they were the Red Sea parting, bursting out slithery breakdance moves. Ensemble members shot each other little side glances of shared joy. A famous host had made his grand first appearance, but it was grand precisely because of an army of excellence around him. And if you're in the San Francisco area, Hippest Trip, the Soul Train musical, written by Dominique Morisot, opens Wednesday, September 6th through October 8th at the Tony Remby Theater. From the Root.com, written by Angela Johnson, published on the 20, no, on the 31st, pardon me. A news anchor shares hilarious headlines from inside his home. The Root spoke with Cheddar News and News 12's Shannon Lanier about his viral family videos. As a New York news anchor and the co-host, pardon me, co-host of Cheddar News' health and wellness series, Be Well, Shannon Lanier is used to keeping people informed, but when he's not in the newsroom delivering the latest headlines, Lanier is on social media, bringing viewers hilarious takes on life with his wife and three children, aged 12, 10, and 7. His clips cover everything from keeping the kids entertained on road trips to the agony of shopping for school supplies. With nearly 2 million YouTube subscribers... I recently, oh, pardon me, people are paying attention. I recently caught up with Lanier to learn why he decided to turn the camera on his family. 
I cover so many sad things as a news anchor, so I wanted to do something lighter that brings joy to people's lives, he said. With his platform, Lanier says he wanted to show people a positive family dynamic and provide some counter-programming to the often negative images of black dads we see. Dads get such a bad rap, he said, but there are so many out there doing the hard work and positively influencing their children's lives, and I wanted to highlight that. It also lets me spend time with my kids and do silly things. And there's no shortage of silly things. For instance, of Lanier removing the door from his daughter's bedroom because she slammed it. But Shannon says the little Lanier's are willing participants who even provide some of the material for the skits, and although they give their fans plenty of access to the family dynamic, Lanier says there's a lot that people don't see. He said, you probably see 40% of what goes on in my house. There are some things the kids won't let me post because they say it's too embarrassing, and sometimes they surprise me and say they don't care. But at the end of the day, we're just having fun. They have a YouTube channel. I think it's called The Lanier Family. That's L-A-N-I-E-R. And from the obituaries department of the New York Times, Leah Garcia, who raised black actors' profile in Brazil, dies at 90, best known internationally for her breakout performance in the 1959 film Black Orpheus, she challenged racial stereotypes over a seven-decade career. This was posted August 25th, written by Alex Williams. Leah Garcia, a pioneering actress who brought new visibility and respect to black actors in Brazil after her breakout performance in the Academy Award-winning film Black Orpheus, died on August 15th in Gramado, a mountain resort town in southern Brazil. Her death of cardiac complications was confirmed by her family on her Instagram account. At her death in a hospital, she was in Gramado to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award at that town's film festival. Her son, Marcelo Garcia, who was also her manager, accepted the honor in her place. Over a prolific career that began in the 1950s, Miss Garcia amassed more than 100 credits in theater, film, and television, from her early years with an experimental black theater group to her later prominence on television productions like the popular 1976 telenovela Escrava Isaura, which means Isaura Slave Girl, based on an 1875 novel by the abolitionist writer Bernardo Guimaraes. It was seen in more than 80 countries. Recounting her career in a 2022 interview with the Brazilian magazine Ella, Ms. Garcia said she felt blessed by her success. I often say that the gods embraced me, she said. Things always arrived for me without me running after them. Still, laboring to change racial perceptions in the world of film and television involved tremendous perseverance and discipline. Much more was demanded of us, she told Ella. We had to arrive with the text on the tip of our tongue, always smelling good and elegant. Others could be wrong, we could not. 
We could play subservient characters, but we needed to show that we ourselves were not. Lea Lucas Garcia de Aguiar was born on March 11, 1933 in Rio de Janeiro. Growing up, she was drawn to literature and aspired to be a writer. That changed one day in 1950. She recalled, I was on my way to pick up my grandmother to take her to the movies when someone came up to me and asked, Would you like to work in theater? The voice belonged to Abdias do Nascimento, the writer, artist, and pan-Africanist activist who created Teatro Experimental do Negro, went by T-E-N, a Rio-based group that aimed to promote the appreciation of Afro-Brazilian culture. The two would become a couple and had two children together. Miss Garcia made her stage debut in 1952 in Mr. Nascimento's play Rapsodia Negra. As the decade drew to a close, she took her career to a new level of international recognition when she was cast in the French director Marcel Camus' Black Orpheus, a retelling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice adapted to the frenzy of Rio's Carnival and featuring music by Antonio Carlos Obim and Luis Bonfa. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 1960. Among her other notable films was Ganga Zumba, the debut feature by Carlos Diegues, a pioneer in Brazil's reformist cinema novo movement, which was made in 1963 but not released until 72. She brought power and complexity to the character of Cipriana, the lover of the title character, who escapes a sugar plantation in the 17th century to lead Colombo's, Colombo dos Palmares, which is a haven for other fugitives from slavery. Ms. Garcia often said, It's not shameful to be a slave, it's shameful to be a colonizer. The pace of her career scarcely slowed over the years. She spent decades as a staple of Brazilian soap operas like O Clone, Ahomau, Hica da Silva, apartments Hica da Silva and Marina. Even in her 80s, Miss Garcia remained productive. She starred in the drama series Baile de Mascaras in 2019 and returned to stage in 2022 in the play A Vida Now e Justa, Life is Not Fair, in which she played three characters and explored themes of diversity, equality, justice, and relationships. In the Ella interview, Ms. Garcia discussed her hopes for her great-great-granddaughter, who was seven months old at the time. I hope for a fair and egalitarian country that respects diversities, she said. That's what I want, and much more. And our next article comes from theblackenterprise.com on a new magazine. Empowering Journal for Black Dads, launched by CEO of Fathers Incorporated. This was posted September 1st. I do not see an author to credit here. The launch of Strength of the Father, Affirmations for Black Dads, represents a pivotal moment in the narrative of black fatherhood. This groundbreaking journal, authored by Kenneth Braswell, the CEO of Fathers Incorporated, aims to fortify black fathers by providing 
an empowering resource designed to cultivate resilience, self-love, and wisdom. These elements are essential in the navigation of the unique journey of black fatherhood. Braswell articulates, This journal is a tangible embodiment of my deep-seated commitment to uplifting the voices and experiences of black fathers. It acts as a guide, a companion, and a reflective tool that showcases the inherent strength and potential every black father possesses. The relevance, pardon me, the relevance of the strength of the father lies in its commitment to reframe the discourse around black fatherhood, enabling black fathers to rewrite their narratives and reinforce their mental fortitude. Braswell emphasizes the importance of this process. Our mental health is not just about coping with life's challenges, but also about nurturing our potential to grow, to learn, and to create positive change. Self-affirmation plays an integral role in this journey. By providing daily affirmations tailored to the experiences of black fathers, Strength of the Father encourages a regular transformative dialogue with the self. This self-dialogue can spark a powerful internal shift, influencing how black fathers perceive themselves and their place in the world. Fathers Incorporated has always been driven by the belief that empowering fathers empowers families, states Braswell. With Strength of the Father, we hope to inspire black dads to realize their significance not only within their families, but within society at large. Each affirmation serves as a reminder of their worth, their strength, and their invaluable role as fathers. Strength of the Father is not just a journal, it's a celebration of black fatherhood, an affirmation of black identity, and a powerful tool for personal growth and emotional resilience. It weaves together the threads of self-love, overcoming adversity, legacy building, leadership, spiritual growth, emotional intelligence, health and wellness, relationship building, personal growth, cultural pride, social justice, and the joys of fatherhood. Braswell elucidates, the journal is not just about the individual affirmations, but the collective power they hold when embraced consistently. Each affirmation is a stepping stone on the journey towards a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life. In essence, Strength of the Father Affirmations for Black Dads is a beacon guiding black fathers toward a deeper understanding and acceptance of themselves. Through the practice of affirmation, it encourages them to embrace their identities as black men, recognize their importance as fathers, and celebrate their value as vital members of their communities. Strength of the Father is available for purchase on Amazon in paperback and hardcover. And as your reader, I want to say I made an error at the beginning. I, I mistakenly thought this was a magazine, but it is a book, a journal. And from what I can tell, it is not yet available as an audio book. However, next I have review of one or two audio books from theroot.com in an article titled, Our Favorite Audiobooks, Narrated by Black Voices. This was posted back on August 13th, written by Angela Johnson. 
Trevor Noah's award-winning memoir and a classic Walter Mosley crime novel are on our list of books we love to listen to. Every month we share our list of books by black authors we can't wait to read. But if you just can't seem to find the time to read them, we forgive you and want to offer you a pretty damn good alternative. Whether you're cleaning house, working out, or stuck in traffic, audiobooks are a great way to pass the time. And check out some of the titles on the bestseller list. And if the actor and writer's strike keep going much longer, you might find yourself running out of options for entertainment. If you're not sure where to start, check out a few of our favorite black audiobooks read by black narrators. First we have Night Crawling, a novel by Layla Motley. It was on Oprah's book club list. Layla Motley's Night Crawling was on Oprah's book club pick, and the audio version, read by Jonice Abbott Pratt, is the perfect way to bring this beautifully written novel to life. The story is told from the perspective of Kiara, a teenager who is struggling to get by in East Oakland, California, after she and her brother have dropped out of high school. Without family, Kiara stumbles into night crawling to pay the bills. Next, God Level Knowledge Darts, Life Lessons from the Bronx, written and narrated by Desus and Mero. Or Desus, perhaps. D-E-S-U-S and Mero, M-E-R-O. God Level Knowledge Darts is a hilarious guide to life from the Bodega Boys, Jesus and Mero. This is one time we'll re- pardon me. This is one time we'll recommend the audiobook over the hardcover version. You'll laugh out loud when you hear these guys explain how you talk to your kids about drugs when you do them. Next, a gentleman of jazz, a life in music, written by Ramsey Lewis and Aaron Cohen, narrated by Dion Graham. Gentleman of Jazz tells the story of acclaimed jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis. Narrated by actor Dion Graham, the audiobook shares Lewis's journey from a childhood in Chicago's notorious Cabrini Green housing projects to becoming a Grammy Award-winning musician with over 80 recorded albums to his name. And the last one for this week, The Hate You Give, Written by Angie Thomas, narrated by Bonnie Turpin. The Hate You Give is a best-selling YA novel, young adult, and a frequent target of conservative book bands. This ripped-from-the-headlines story follows a teenage girl who witnesses the death of her unarmed childhood friend at the hands of police. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the novel, check out the audiobook version read by acclaimed narrator, Bonnie Turbin, that's spelled B-A-H-N-I, Turpin. If her voice leaves you wanting more, and we're sure it will, check out her narration of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks and James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour.
AINC programming is brought to you in part by funds from the Virginia W. Hill Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.